Good morning. So good to see you all here this morning. Um, if you're new here visiting and I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to meet you. Uh, my name is Jason. I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here and I have the opportunity to serve with a group of men who are elders who, uh, who I believe for the most part love Jesus more than they love themselves and love you more than they love themselves and so I'm honored to get to serve with them. Uh, but even, even more important than that, just being a part of this church family is such an honor to me. And if you're looking for a church home, uh, my hope is that you'll consider making Solid Rock your church home. And at the end of the service, um, I'll be up front with a couple of other pastors. We'd love to meet you and answer any questions you have about the church or, or anything that, that you might have on your heart. So um, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning as we start a new sermon series I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, if you want to go ahead and, and turn there in your Bible, you've got a, a few minutes before we get started. A couple of announcements. Um, it, as you noticed when you came in this morning and, and the, over the last three or four months, we've got a lot of work going on around the campus, outside, uh, and so we've got a work day coming up on June the 16th I wanted to tell you about, and so... Um, this is a, a, a work day where we really need all hands on deck. We've got a ton going on right now. Um, we've got a pile of brush down by the pond that we're going to cut into small pieces and chip into mulch. We've got the remodel that will be uh, winding up in the next two weeks or so, and so we'll have a lot of cleanup. We might have some Ikea furniture to put together. We might have some blinds to hang or windows to wash or floors to mop. There's a ton of different things that will probably be going on on June the 16th from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. And so I want to ask you and invite you to be a part of that work day. Um, and you, we need, for preparation uh, purposes, we need to know who's planning on being here. So if you could let us know by either signing up online, go to registrations and sign up, or you saw the tent probably coming in. Uh, it'll be set up after the service on your way out. You can just uh, sign up there, throw your name on the list, and let us know you plan on being there. As we get closer, we will let you know if and what tools or supplies to bring as we get a better list of what we're actually going to be doing that day. We just know that there's a lot of work, and so all hands on deck um, if you're available on June the 16th. Um, also want to give you a quick update on our student camp coming up, Refuge. Uh, you guys have heard about that uh, over the last two or three weeks, been announced. Um, got a word in from Jeremy, our student pastor this week, that we actually have seven kiddos who want to go to youth camp who don't have the funds to get there. Um, it's $225 per kid to get our students there, and um, so I wanted to bring that uh, need before the church. Um, I want, don't want anybody to feel obligated uh, in no way, but if God puts it on your heart to help send students to camp, um, you can let us know by either on your check or on the envelope. Uh, just put on their student scholarship or youth scholarship or youth camp scholarship, and we'll know where to apply that money. Um, and so I lay that before you um, really in faith because we've never had a situation where we had to tell a student or a kid no. Um, and that's just how good God has been uh, to our students and kids. So we anticipate that's going to happen again. But I wanted to bring it before you, the church, just so you would know um, what that need is. And so um, that is right now currently seven students um, out of, I don't know how many are signed up to go, but I'm sure it's probably triple or quadruple that who are totally signed up to go. All right, so we are ready to start a new sermon series today entitled, Even Sinners Such as I. And today, um, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, what we're going to do in this sermon series is very similar to what we did 
two years ago in the summer where we did our Redemption Stories sermon series where we would come in on Sunday morning and we would look at the gospel from the word of God and then we would listen to a testimony from somebody in our church about how God met them in their brokenness and their weakness or in their failures and, and rescued their lives. And so we're going to do that this summer. And, uh, and so today will be the only Sunday where we don't roll out the testimony video to go along with. That starts next week. Um, but what's different about this summer is that um, we are actually going to be hearing the testimonies of our elders and our staff. And, uh, and the reason for that is because we desire and we believe that God is calling us to be a church that walks in gospel transparency. And we're going to define that today, what that means, what that looks like. But we believe that if that's the case, then really our leaders should go first, and that if our leaders will go first in this journey, that it will, it will be a part of, of the process of putting into our DNA this, this gospel transparency that will cause us to be more like Jesus every day. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, looking at the Apostle Paul's example from 1 Timothy chapter 1. So let's read verses 12 through 17 together, and then we're going to stop and talk. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what a moment of humility and transparency by the Apostle Paul. And to fully grasp the weight of what we just read, we've got to know a little bit about who Paul was. What does he mean when he says, I was a persecutor and a blasphemer? Well, if we journey backwards in time from when this letter was written to a young pastor named Timothy, our our first encounter with Paul in the Bible is in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10. And this is the remarkable moment where Paul goes from Saul, that's what he, who he was identified as, the leading persecutor against the church, to dramatically, miraculously encountering Jesus and saved to eternal life. And so if we journey back to that moment, we read this description in Acts chapter 9 of who Paul was before Christ. It's so important to understand. Now keep in mind on the timeline... Jesus resurrected from the grave somewhere around 30, 32 A.D. And so 
somewhere around 33, 34 AD is when we first encounter Paul, who goes by Saul in the scriptures. And in chapter 9 of Acts, somewhere around 33, 34 AD, we read, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And what those two verses are describing for us is that Saul, as arguably the leading persecutor against the church, was now going to the high priest and asking for written permission, letters, documentation, legalizing him to go and to travel from town to town and village to village and any person he found who had the courage to say, I follow Jesus, he had authority to bind them up, drag them back to Jerusalem to be prosecuted and ultimately executed. Right? So Acts 7, Stephen's there. This is an example to us. He was bound and drugged there to Jerusalem and prosecuted. And we read that they threw stones at him until he died. And then in chapter 8 of Acts, we read that Saul was there giving approval to his death. So in a sense, Paul, at this moment in his timeline, in his journey, he's a legalized terrorist against the church. He's breathing murderous threats against the church. And here in 1 Timothy, he calls himself, right, a persecutor, a blasphemer, this vicious leading opponent to the church. Now, what we're going to do for just a moment is kind of journey forward in time from there. Okay, so this is Acts 9, then in Acts 10, he dramatically encounters Jesus on the road, struck with blindness, escorted to the next town, right? Encounters the forgiveness that comes by trusting in Jesus, and now he's a Christian. Again, somewhere around 34 AD. We're going to fast forward now, 20 years in time, to where Paul, after 20 years of following Jesus, living as a missionary, he's writing a letter to a church in Corinth. And listen to what he says about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, somewhere around 53, 55 AD, about 20 years later. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So 20 years later, he hadn't lost sight of the fact that God graciously and dramatically saved him from persecutor, right? Converted him, transformed him into apostle. And he calls himself the least of the apostles, not only because he didn't walk with Jesus like Peter and John did, but because he was a leading persecutor against the church. So after 20 years of being a Christian, he hadn't lost sight of that great rescue of God who had, had met him in his persecution against the church and radically saved him to become an apostle. We fast forward another five, seven, eight years. We find Paul writing a church or writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. Listen to what he says about himself here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, or somewhere around 62 to 65 AD. In verse 7, he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace 
which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So we we have somewhat of a progression in Paul's journey as a Christian, and it's not quite what we would expect. We would expect Paul to go from Acts chapter 10, I'm the worst sinner in the world, then somewhere down the road, right, he, he graduates to, you know what, I'm the least of the saints, to one day, once he finally gets to a level of spiritual maturity, he would say, well, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles, but we actually see the reverse happening, don't we? The further that Paul journeys in his relationship with Christ, the more humble he seems to become, and he goes from what, persecutor against the church, to least of the apostles, I'll scratch that, least of the saints, and now in 1 Timothy, he's saying, you know what, scratch all that, I'm the chief sinner. Now, what an interesting progression we see in the apostle Paul's life. Now, I think a mistake would be to read all this and say, well, it's all because Paul felt dramatically guilty because of all he used to do. It's all about who he was before he became a Christian, because he says that. I used to be a blasphemer, persecutor against the church. But when we follow Paul's life, there's this, this moment, a small moment of just vulnerability in a letter that he wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 7, where Paul lets us know that his humility, his growing humility in Christ was not solely rooted in the fact that he used to be a terrorist, but it was also rooted in this ongoing need and awareness and dependency upon the gospel of Jesus and the new mercies of God that come every day. Acts, excuse me, Romans chapter 7, listen to this, these statements of just humility and transparency from Paul. For I do not understand my own actions. Anybody else in the room? And if we don't know what he means by that, he goes on to explain. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now we're connecting with Paul, aren't we? Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Listen to verse 19. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Romans chapter 7, this moment of vulnerability is positioned between Romans 6 and 8 beautifully. Romans 6 is this reminder that, yes, sin is still actively... attacking our lives and as Christ followers we daily have to choose who are we going to submit to to sin working in our lives or submit to the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in our lives on a daily basis and Paul is saying in the next chapter hey guys I struggle with this I always get it right chapter 8 begins with this beautiful proclamation therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and Paul is what he's explaining is that there's this Holy Spirit work within us 
right? But sin is also constantly competing with the work of the Holy Spirit, seeking to entangle us and to ensnare us and to shroud our lives with shame and and guilt and to divert us from worshiping the one true God. This beautiful moment of vulnerability from Paul, and later on in Romans 7, he actually calls himself a wretched man. So what we get from Paul is not just that his humility is rooted in an awareness of how bad he used to be, but this ongoing daily struggle and need for the gospel and the mercies of God to be new every day. When we get to this part of his confession where he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Depending on what translation you're reading from, the NASB will say the foremost of all. The NIV says of whom I'm the worst. And then the King James says, scratch all that, I'm the chief of sinners. Whichever way you rack it, whatever translation you're in, Paul's making this statement that from his perspective, he's the worst sinner. Now, what Paul isn't saying is that somehow we can measure our sins against one another and that at this moment in time, he literally is the worst sinner. What Paul is confessing to us is that Paul is the sinner whom he knows the best. He knows himself better than anyone. Therefore, he knows his own sin better than anyone. Right? Which is true about our lives, isn't it? I mean, we can look at the sin in other people's lives and we can see heart motives twisted and issues and struggles. We and our own children, we see their little hearts are oftentimes bent towards rebellion or selfishness, but we know no one better than we know ourselves. So we know no greater sin in anyone than we know the sin in our own lives, right? And so this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, I've gotten to a place in my journey with Christ where I can honestly say, to my knowledge, I'm the worst sinner. I'm no longer considering myself the least of the apostles. I mean, that was a humble statement. I'm no longer considering myself the least among the saints, the Christians in the church. I mean, that's a pretty humble statement too. Paul's saying, you know what? I am the worst sinner I know. Now, essentially, what Paul is saying to us and saying to Timothy saying to you today is this. This is the point of the gospel. Jesus came to the world to save, you fill in the blank, sinners, right? That's the point of the gospel. There there is no other point. That's the point. Jesus came to earth to save sinners. Listen, the gospel of Matthew chapter 9, we read about what Jesus was doing and what the Pharisees thought about it. In verse nine of chapter nine in Matthew, we read that as Jesus passed on from there, so he's traveling around, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It was a pretty taboo thing for Jesus to do, to interact with a tax collector. But then look at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table, In the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So he was not only willing to talk with sinners and be around them, he's hanging out with them. He's reclining at the table, sharing meals with people with whom the culture of that day had declared, these are sinners. Stay away from these people. They're unclean. Verse 11, and when the, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, hey guys, come here. 
why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right? Why doesn't he have a bullhorn standing on the corner of the streets yelling at them, condemning them, and judging them? And why is he hanging out with them? Why is he spending time with these dirty, wretched, sinful, broken people? And Jesus overhears this. He's, and in verse 12 says, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners out of Jesus' own mouth. Now, think about this, church. If you're here today and you're claiming to be a Christian, what you're essentially saying is, I am a sinner in need of rescue. It's antithetical to claim on one hand to be a Christian and then to stand in self-righteousness and judge others. Right? Those two things compete against one another because the declaration of the gospel is I'm a sinner and unless God rescues me, I've got no help. This is what Paul's telling young Timothy. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners among whom I am the worst. I'm a sinner at the core of who I am. I can do nothing to save or fix myself. Therefore, I've asked God to save me from my sins. Real sins. Dark sins. Sins that I'm embarrassed about. Sins that I don't want you to know about. Jesus is my real Savior because I have a real need to be saved. You see how goofy it is to claim to be a Christian and then to attempt to walk in self-righteousness? Jesus looks at that and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you can handle this on your own, what do you need me for? I didn't come to save the self-righteous and those who have it together. I came to meet people in their brokenness and to save sinners. It's why I often say here at Solid Rock, you know who should be among the chief repenters in our church? The elders. Yeah. Why? Because they're just dirty, rotten scoundrels and they just can't get their sin life together? Well, there's still sin struggle. I said earlier, I believe that they are at a place where they love Jesus more than they love themselves, but they, us, like Paul, are still wrestling, me included. Right? And so the, the mark of a mature Christian isn't that I would progress more and more and become less and less repentant and le- less and less humble, but actually the opposite should be true if we follow Paul's example, right? The more, I, the more I encounter Christ and come into this awareness of my deep need for him, the more repentant I am. The frequency goes up, right? The humility goes up. And so I believe that our elders at this church should be among the foremost, using Paul's words, of those who own sin and confess and repent. And then Paul, in verse 16 and 17, I love this, he reminds us of some things. Verse 16, he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul's saying, my life's like a mirror the more open and transparent I am about how rotten I used to be in my ongoing struggle, the more I'm like this beautiful reflection of God's goodness to other people. And people look at me and they go, Paul, didn't you write most of the New Testament? Yeah. 
I mean, weren't you like a, the leading missionary in the book of Acts? Yeah. And, and yet, you have this ongoing struggle with sin, and you call yourself the chief of sinners, and Paul says, yes, now you're on to it. Why? So that in me, my life is a reflection of the goodness and the patience of God. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? The primary human author of your New Testament is saying to you and to me, I'm the chief sinner. And what he's saying here then is this, that his story really isn't isn't about him, is it? What God's doing in his life, his calling in his life, it's not really about him. His story is really about God. And Paul's saying, I'm not the primary character in my story. You know, one of the things I love about um, the stories in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is how real they are. Right? There's, there's, there's very little, if any, attempt to smooth things over and portray people as better than they are. Whether you're reading about Noah, David, Paul, Peter, right? The, the scriptures make no attempt to cover for these guys and portray them to us as, as people who have it together. We see their flaws. We see Peter denying Christ and Paul persecuting the church and David committing adultery and murder. Like, Right? Now, think about that. There's a realness to the stories of the Bible. Listen to me, church. God desires for there to be a realness in your story, too. He doesn't want you to go through great pains and efforts to cover it up and dress it up and make it better than it is. He wants to meet you in your real story, your real mess, your real brokenness, your real failures, your real weakness. And then as we see in Paul's testimony, then he desires to make your story ultimately about him and to write a better story with your life than you can write yourselves. And then look at what Paul does in this last verse. It's almost like he has a schizophrenic moment and changes topics on us. He's talking about himself and all this stuff that happened. He's the worst sinner. And then look at what he does in this very last verse. To the king of the ages, immortal Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul saying? Here's why I stand before you in gospel transparency, because it's all about him, not about me. I don't have to try to save face with you. I don't have to try to pretend something to be something I'm not. My identity is not rooted in what you think about me. I know who I am. I've already told you I believe the gospel, so I've kind of just laid it all out in front of you, right? I'm a mess. And then I wrote all these letters to churches that are one day going to be put into this thing called the Bible, and you're going to just, right, see who I am, my daily struggles, and why? Because this is about God. It's about bringing Him glory. It's about God using my life to save others. My story's not really about me. It's about Him. As Paul was sitting there, I just imagine Paul writing and laboring over this letter. Did he have hesitations? Maybe. Well, what if I'm too open and honest with Timothy? Will that discourage him to not trust my words? Will that discredit me in his eyes? And as he's writing out his story with honesty and gospel transparency, he couldn't help but just drift into worship, could he? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, glory and honor forever and ever. So what is gospel transparency? 
what we're not talking about is just simple, common transparency. Because here's what happens if we just try to become transparent with one another. We'll do one of two things or both at the same time. We'll invite people to this pity party, right? Here's where I fall short. Here's where I fail. Here's where I'm a loser. Here's where I'm a loser. Well, I'm a loser too. And we just compare ourselves to one another and try to make each other feel better about ourselves, right? And just kind of throw this big pity party together. But the second thing we'll do is then we'll have no need, no hope, no desire to be transformed in anything different. We'll just get comfortable with being failures, right? That's not gospel-centered transparency, Gospel-centered transparency is walking in honesty, vulnerability, and humility with God and with one another, and at the same time believing that as we do that and participate in repentance and owning sin and transparency, that God meets us there to transform us to be more like Christ. doesn't leave us in this pity party trying to pat one another on on the back and make each other feel better, right? Instead of doing that, what do we do? We say the gospel to one another. We say, yeah, brother, I know that's your sin struggle. Thanks for trusting me by being transparent. Now, let me remind you who you are. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. And he's calling you to holiness and godliness, and he's doing that work in you. So be transparent. Be humble. Own your sin and walk in repentance, believing in faith that in repentance, God transforms you into the image of Christ. You see, that's got hope in it, doesn't it? Right? I think as Paul looked back, he looked back with thankfulness. I'm so thankful I'm not who I was before I met Christ. That, that text we read was full of thankfulness, wasn't it, and gratitude? I'm so thankful that I, I'm not who I was when I wrote that letter to the first letter to the church in Corinth. I'm so glad I'm, I'm not who I was when I wrote that letter to the church in Ephesus. And Praise be to God, Timothy. By the time you receive this letter, I won't be who I was when I wrote this letter. Why? Because he who began a good work in me is going to bring it to completion. And every day, every step of confession and repentance, I am becoming more and more like Jesus. Jesus didn't come to rescue people who think they have it together. Jesus came to save sinners. The sign of true spiritual maturity isn't the absence of repentance. It's the growing presence of Christ-exalting, gospel-saturated repentance. As believers, we become more and more aware of the daily need for the gospel. At Solid Rock, we desire to become a church where gospel transparency is part of our DNA. This means that we are open with one another about our struggles One, because we're walking in covenant relationship with one another, which means we don't bail, right? When you frustrate me, I don't just walk away. When you fall short or you fail, I'm not leaving, I'm staying, we're going to work through this together. Well, also because the gospel creates a context where our identities aren't in jeopardy when we're honest with one another. We know who we are and whose we are. Me being vulnerable with you is not hindered by what I think you're going to think about me, right? Because remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? He said, hey, from now on, church, let's don't regard one another according to the flesh. Don't look at each other that way anymore. Look at each other as God's children. Ultimately, we desire to become a church that is honest about our struggles because we believe the gospel, which says that we are sinners in need of a Savior Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the worst, is what Paul said. Even sinners such as I. Now, this is going to be our journey for the summer. And each week, you're going to get a chance to come in and, and hear sermon preached from God's word. 
And then you're going to get to hear a testimony from one of our leaders, elders, and staff just sharing in honesty about how Jesus has met them and rescued them from different stories, different backgrounds. There will be a lot of similarities and there will be a lot of differences. But all of these stories are being told to point to what? The one true God. To the God of the ages, the God immortal, the God invisible. To him be the glory and honor forever and ever. I want to land there this morning. And I want to invite our worship team to come back up and our prayer partners will come down to the front and they'll be available at the front and the back if there's something going on stirring in your heart and you want somebody to pray with you, they'd be honored to do that. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have not trusted in the work that Jesus has done for you, let me just say first and foremost, this is where it begins. You want a testimony like, like Paul's? It begins by trusting in Jesus for the first time, that believing that what he did on the cross for you was enough. Enough to pay for your sins, enough to make you right with God, enough to get you into heaven. And the Bible says that if you'll believe that truth, your sins are forgiven, your eternity is secured. So I'm going to pray with you now, and if that's you, I encourage you to to pray, believing that Jesus has died for your sins. And if you want to talk with somebody about becoming a Christian, our prayer partners, once again, will be available to you. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray now in thanksgiving. God, our hearts are full with this beautiful reminder from the scriptures today of your goodness, the abundance of your mercy given to us, God. And we're so thankful that it's not just a one-time shot where we receive your mercy and then from there on we have to have it together. God, thank you for this beautiful reminder today that your mercies meet us new every morning. Father, help us to become a church that believes the gospel. Help us, God, to apply the gospel to our own lives on a daily basis. God, would you stir in this church a Christ-exalting, gospel-centered transparency that, God, we might follow in Paul's example here in the scripture. God, our lives would be this beautiful proclamation and beautiful testimony of how good you are. Father, we ask that you would meet with us now, that you would do a supernatural work in us, that your Holy Spirit would move through our hearts and speak to us as we prepare to respond. In Jesus' name.